First Christian Church over here. And uh, I noticed the, their, their big sign out front uh, had the title of my sermon. And I began thinking to myself, you know, I'm hoping that dude didn't steal my sermon because if he did, I'd be super mad. And then, and then I realized, you know, Christmas time, you're going to hear the same message just about at every single church that you go to. And I think that's just a glorious testament to the unity of God's church, that we're focused on Jesus Christ this month. Not just this month, but this month especially. That's something to amen, right? Amen. amen. Well, hey, I just want to take a moment and welcome all of our guests, visitors, longtime attenders, members. I'm so glad that each and every one of you are here. And if you're new here, I want to invite you to fill out a brown card at the back. You can fill it out, uh, put it in the, the black basket, take a nice, beautiful uh, Covenant Church mug, and uh, we'll get in touch with you. We're just so glad that you're here. Well, my name is Ben Espinoza. I serve as the pastor of Community Life here at Covenant Church. And this morning, we'll be continuing our series called Glory Revealed, where we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ and all of his glory. And as I've said previously, the glory of the Messiah was promised for generations in the Old Testament. And all of the messianic thrust of the entire Old Testament culminates in the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And just to recap, last week, I talked a little bit about how glory means a few different things in the Bible. Okay? It means weight. It means heaviness, as if somebody's pressing their presence into you. It also means brightness or luminosity, as in someone's uh, presence is blinding you with how bright that they are. It also means that you're a hero. It means someone has a positive opinion with you. And it was almost always used to refer to a king who would return for, from a glorious victory on the fields of battle. And if you were to summarize all this together, you'd arrive at the same conclusion that St. Augustine did in the 4th century by saying that glory means brilliant celebrity with praise, or for the one or two Latin nerds in the, the room here, clara nutitia cum laude. You got that? Good. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a man who devoted his life to preparing the way for the oncoming glory of the Messiah before finally seeing it for himself. Now, as I've mentioned from this pulpit a number of times before, I used to be a rock star back in high school. I was part of a band called Blood Drive because there was only one donor. We thought it was super cool at the time, 17 years old, everything's cool. And we played a variety of shows in a variety of venues throughout the Detroit area. And in some of the shows, we were the only act. In some of the other shows, we were the main act. We had an opening act. Now, I remember one show where we had this opening act. And I remember talking to the band that was, was going to do the opening act. And I remember thinking, yeah, you know, people will be begging for the gloriousness of blood drive once these people are done. And these guys played their first set. And they were fantastic. And my band, we got a little bit nervous. But you know what? Those guys were just the opening act. People were there to see us. But that opening act got everybody excited for what was to come. They got the crowd on their feet. They set the temperature for us just right. And when our time came to get up there and play our hearts out, the lead singer from this opening act, this band, whom I thought wouldn't be good, but turned out to be great, gave us a rousing introduction. And that night was glorious. This morning, we're going to be looking at the greatest opening act in all of history. His name is John the Baptist, who really was a rock star in his own right. 
perhaps one of the most important figures of the New Testament, as we'll see. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We're going to stick here, but we're also kind of going to bounce around a little bit. Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts with wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, oh, there we go, we're done. Um, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that this morning that you'll help us to glorify and magnify your son Jesus above all else, Lord. I pray that you'll open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the different truths that you want us to learn this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So just a couple things about the Gospel of Mark uh, before we get into the message here. Mark is known as an efficient gospel because he moves very quickly. And it's also the shortest gospel out of all four gospels. Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. It's very long. And Luke begins his by telling the recipient, Theophilus, just how accurate his gospel will be. And John introduces his gospel by giving what I call a divine genealogy of the Christ. He's the Son of God come down to earth. But Mark is quick and he's efficient. Okay? And he begins his gospel by saying this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It's plain. It's pretty simple, right? And what's so interesting about this account is that he doesn't start by telling the Christmas story. He doesn't begin by telling about how the angel appeared to Mary. And he doesn't talk about Herod or all of his issues. He's straight to the point. There's probably a few reasons for this. But the big idea is that the Christmas story... The big idea about the Christmas story is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God made flesh who has come to save this planet from itself. And Mark basically summarizes that truth for us right here in his introduction. And you've got to keep in mind, too, that Mark's gospel is most likely an adaptation of Matthew's gospel. So he's looking for ways how he can introduce a non-Jewish audience to Jesus Christ the Messiah. And through the power of the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit didn't deem it worthy. He didn't deem it necessary for Mark to begin his gospel with the Christmas story. 
So Mark's concern is to keep his gospel moving forward at a quick pace because he's writing to Gentiles who have no idea about who this Jewish Messiah really is. But that doesn't stop Mark from using Jewish imagery. Check out what he says in verse 2. He says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, this is where it gets a little bit interesting and just a little tricky. Because if you're familiar with the Bible enough, you'll notice that there are probably one or two problems with these verses right here. First off, he's not quoting just from Isaiah. He's quoting from a few different books. He's quoting from Exodus and Malachi alongside Isaiah. Now, what some people will say is that this is an error on the part of Mark. So, you know, Mark's writing his gospel. He's tired, he's lazy, he's watched too much Netflix. So he incorrectly quotes the Old Testament. And that's the argument of most people today. Some people today will say that, minus the bit about Netflix. But what Mark is doing is he's trying to contextualize Isaiah's reference in order to emphasize the Isaiah reference. Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way. That's a combination of both Exodus and Malachi. And then the rest is found in Isaiah chapter 40. So he's citing Isaiah correctly, but he just wants to contextualize that verse in order to set up the punch. And the punch is this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ starts with a messenger who will prepare the way. That he will be the sign for everyone that the time of the Messiah is fast approaching. And then Mark tells us exactly who this messenger is. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So this messenger that will precede the Messiah, his name is John the Baptist. And he's preaching that people need to repent of their sins and be baptized. Now Mark doesn't tell us anything about John's origins. Remember, his goal is to cut to the chase. But because we're Christians, we're living in the 21st century, we have the benefits of having some background about about who this John character really was. And if you turn to Luke chapter 1, Luke tells us about John's birth. And and it's kind of a long narrative, so let me summarize it for you here. A priest named Zechariah is married to this woman named Elizabeth. And they're pretty old, and they're unable to have kids, even though they've always wanted them. Now, back in those days, priests didn't serve weekly. They were called upon to administer sacrifices in the temple according to their priestly division. And in the case of Zechariah, he belonged to a, a division called Abijah. And Zechariah's time came to go and serve in the temple. And as he's burning the incense and he's saying the prayers, an angel of the Lord named Gabriel appears to him. Now, fun fact, when you're a priest and you have to serve in the temple, it was traditional that as you come before the Holy of Holies, that you move off to the side just a little bit in order to leave room for the angel of the Lord who is supposed to be there. So imagine you're Zechariah. You've probably served in the temple one, maybe two times in your entire life. 
And you've saved the place for an angel of the Lord. And you know that he's there, but you can't necessarily see him. And then all of a sudden, you see the angel. It'd be pretty scary, wouldn't it? So here's how I imagine it going. You know, Zechariah is kind of walking in. He's nervous. He's kind of shaking. But he's also kind of confident because, hey, he's a priest of this, and the servant of the Most High God. So he has a little bit of, a, of, a, of confidence about him. So he's walking in. He moves off to the side a little bit, puts everything down, turns to the side. He's like, what's up to the angel? And then he realizes there's an angel right there next to me. <laughs> and here's what the angel says to him. He says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will, hear, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Remember the very last two verses of the entire Old Testament? The very last words that God spoke before 400 years of silence? Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. See, I will send you the prophet Isaiah before that great and dreadful day that the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So John the Baptist, this, this baby John, will be the connective tissue between the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New. He's the one who picks up right after Malachi leaves off. He's going to get people's hearts ready for the coming Messiah. And John, the name John means God's been gracious or God has favor. Now, I don't think that that name is arbitrary either. It's not a random name. God is gracious by providing a forerunner of the Messiah just so we don't miss him. And it says here that John is never going to drink alcohol in his life. And the reason for this is because John needs to be set apart for the work of preaching repentance and raising people's awareness about the oncoming Messiah. So Zechariah hears from the angel, and he says, you know, no offense, but I'm really old, okay? I can't have kids, and my wife's pretty old too. How's this going to work? And I love Gabriel's response. He's just like, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you're going to be silent and not be able to speak anything until this day comes because you didn't believe my words, which will come true in their appointed time. So Gabriel is like, dude, I'm an angel standing right in front of you, and you're going to ask me how this is going to happen? Kind of like Darth Vader, your lack of faith disturbs me. <laughs> he says, I'm not going to let you talk for a while as a result. So Zechariah walks away, and, and, and people can tell that he's had some strange encounter. They knew that he saw an angel, and everyone's just a little bit on edge. So Zechariah goes home. He finds what the angel said to be true, that Elizabeth is pregnant. Now in the narrative, in the Lucan narrative, it says that Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her that she will bear a son named Jesus. And next week, we're going to look at that whole story because it's amazing. 
But in Luke chapter 1, verse 36, you find out that Mary and Elizabeth are cousins or relatives. It doesn't say exactly how they're related. Most people think they are probably cousins, but we know that they are. And here's where it gets interesting. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 44. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. So Mary goes down to visit Elizabeth. But notice that Elizabeth isn't really expecting her, and she's not texting her, obviously. But she knows that Mary is going to come. She knew Mary was pregnant because of the Holy Spirit. And it says that the baby leapt in her womb. Now remember the prophecy of the angel that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before the time that he is born. Could have been that the baby kicked at just the right time. But the text doesn't let us say that. As soon as the mother of the Lord Jesus speaks, John had an emotional reaction. And it says that he leapt for joy. Nobody remembers time in the womb. I don't even think babies can even perhaps think like that in the womb. But this baby had the Holy Spirit inside of him. And that gave him the awareness that the promised Messiah is probably just a few feet away from him. So John's born. And it says at the very end of Luke chapter 1, verse 80, that John grew strong in spirit and lived in the wilderness until he publicly appeared before Israel. And that takes us back to our, uh, to, uh, to our passage, Mark chapter 1. At the right time, John makes his big debut before the children of Israel, preaching a message of repentance in the spirit of Elijah, that great Old Testament prophet, who challenged every single king he encountered, who brought down fire from heaven, and who vigorously preached that the worship of the one true God needs to happen. The worship of him and him alone needs to happen. Elijah even donned a cloak made of camel hair and he donned a leather belt just like John did. And I'm sure that Elijah had a taste for bugs dipped in honey as well. John sounds like a rock star. Camel hair, eating bugs, kind of on the edge a little bit. Probably had long hair too. Now what's really cool is that John preaches repentance in the wilderness, which is where the children of Israel became the children of God. And John's main purpose is to turn people back to God so they'll be more spiritually aware for when the Messiah comes onto the scene. And he preaches a message of repentance and he baptizes people as a symbol of their cleansed hearts. It's a time to prepare people's hearts for the oncoming Messiah. And here's what he says. Here's the message of John the Baptist. After me comes the one more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So here John lets people know that he is the forerunner of the Messiah. 
They know that he is giving people just a taste of who is to come. He says the Messiah is much more powerful than he ever is. And that he himself is unworthy to untie his shoes. Now chances are, John's probably be reacting to people who think that he's the Messiah. As we, and we can see that kind of stuff going on in the book of John. But Mark gives John very few lines of dialogue. And this is because Mark wants to emphasize not only John's humility, but also his recognition that he prepares the way for the hero of the story. Remember, he's just a voice crying in the wilderness. His message is simple and it's humble. He baptizes with just water, but he's preparing the way for one who will be more powerful beyond all of our imaginations and who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And in some versions say the Holy Spirit and fire. And he's going to reveal his glory, his celebrity for all the world to see. Already right here, you can see that John knows his role in this story. He knows his role is small. He knows he's a supporting actor. He would probably say he's an extra with very few minutes of screen time who fades to the background as the story moves on. Mark chapter 1 verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, if you read other gospel accounts, there's a little more meat here, okay? John says... I need baptism from you, not the other way around. And Jesus says, you need to baptize me because this is the right thing to do. But remember, Mark doesn't want to douse you with the details, with the drama. He wants to cut to the chase. Now imagine you're John, John the Baptist. And you're going through your business. You're preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins. And then suddenly Jesus comes onto the scene. One of my favorite movie scenes of all time is from the 1977 uh, film version called Jesus of Nazareth. And in my opinion, it's probably one of the the better crafted accounts of Jesus' life. And Jesus is portrayed by the, you know, brown-haired, white-skinned, blue-eyed Robert Powell. And John the Baptist is portrayed by Michael York, both incredible actors. And you see in the film, John is baptizing people. And he's preaching, and he's going about his business for a couple minutes. And as he gets ready to baptize the next person, he looks up. You can see his temperament change. His eyes get big, and a smirk goes on his face. And he sees Jesus just a few feet away. And Jesus has this look on his face. He's like, I know you know who I am. And they come together, and they exchange words. And John baptizes Jesus. And John continues his work. But you can tell that he's not the same because he just saw the glory of the king, the glory of the one he felt in his mother's womb. Now imagine John's great privilege of baptizing the king of the universe. Like I said, the one for whom he leapt for joy in his mother's womb and for whom he has spent his whole life preparing for. Imagine the power, the transformation that occurred in that moment. The glory that had been promised had just been revealed before his very eyes. And it says that just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. 
And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Finally, Mark reaches the climax of his introduction. Remember, he introduces his gospel as the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here it is, the pronouncement from heaven that Jesus is the Son of God, the Lamb of God who will take away all the sins of the world. All of John's life was leading up to that moment. From the time he felt the glory of his Savior in another's womb, to the time he baptizes his Savior, to the time that he sees this royal pronouncement from heaven of the Son of God. And there's other details of John's story, such as the fact that he stood up to King Herod and to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees. And as a result, he kind of became a martyr for the good news of Christ. But I'm sure that if you were to ask John the Baptist, if he was standing right here, He would tell us not to focus on him, but to focus on the one who was and is and is to come. And I might be saying, you know, Ben, I love what you have to say. But this isn't a Christmas sermon, really. Where's where's baby Jesus? Where's the wise men? No room at the stable. Rudolph. Here's what I think the figure and story of John the Baptist means to us this Advent season. I think, number one, it means that God never abandons us. As I've said before, Christmas means that God doesn't leave us without hope. He doesn't leave us in limbo. There will always be a sign. And that's the role that John the Baptist plays in this whole saga. He's the sign who points to the Messiah. His whole life testifies to it. Remember, his name is God has been gracious. And by sending John as the forerunner of the Christ... God indeed shows himself to be gracious and favorable. He didn't have to give us a sign. But I like to think because God created us and he knows our weaknesses and he knows that we can be so blind and thick-headed that he wanted us to have a sign so that we could see him himself obviously revealing himself. In this Advent season, we can't forget that he does this for us. He never abandons us. He never has, and he never will. I think it also means, too, that Christmas is a great time to repent. We often don't think about Christmas time as a, a good time to repent. We love to think about Jesus being in the manger. Everything's joyful and wonderful and happy, and the cocoa's warm and the fellowship's good. But John spent his whole life preparing for the great and terrible day when God would hold everybody accountable to his Messiah. And when we celebrate Christmas time, we celebrate that very fact that the one who demands our hearts and our souls and who will defeat every enemy the world has ever seen has made himself known to us. Most likely in your devotional reading or whatever you do, you're probably going to read something that says, you know, forget about that, that new razor you want for Christmas. Or all that new running gear you've been asking for. Remember, Jesus is the reason for the season. And that devotional's right. It's absolutely true. But it's not enough just to remember Jesus this season. We've got to submit our hearts to him. And that means repenting because the kingdom of God is at hand. And there's no better time to do that than today. He's calling us from the manger. Not only to give us hope during these crooked times... 
He's calling for us to give repentance. He's calling for us to give up every single thing that we worship that's not him. And to truly worship our hearts and find our joy and our hope and our rest and our security in him and him alone. And that was the message of John the Baptist. Get back to basics. If you've been Christian for a long time and you're numb to it, it's time to repent. And the true meaning of repentance is that you recognize the error of your ways. And you get back on track with where God wants you to go. Maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus. Now is the time to get right with God. John may have preceded Jesus. He may have faded to the background in this whole story. But his message still rings true 2,000 years later. I think this story also exhorts us to point the way to Jesus with our words and with our lives. Often imagine what John did for all those years in the wilderness. What would you do? I bet he spent his time thinking about when the Messiah would appear before all. I bet, his, I bet he spent his time thinking about what this Messiah would look like. And I bet he thought about what he would say to this Messiah once he appears. We don't have to think or imagine like John the Baptist because we know what Jesus looks like. And we have the opportunity to show everybody this Christmas season what Jesus means to us and how our hope is found in only him. Every few years, United States, we enter into a season of political campaigns where men and women have a chance to elect a new leader of our nation. You know how the story goes. Just several years of one guy in office who promised to lead our nation into prosperity, he fails. And those running for president shrouds on every mistake he's ever made. And once we have a new president, the same cycle repeats itself. It's the story of all campaigns in our history. And I want to be brutally honest and just very candid here for a moment. The way a lot of us Christians talk about elections, it makes us sound that our hope is in our new political leader, our new president. That our hope is somehow insecure if we elect the wrong person into office. But we already have a leader, and he's the king of the universe who loves this world and wants to see it find its true life in him and him alone. And when we point with our life to something other than Jesus, we are lost. You just can't pay homage to Jesus at Christmas time and then ignore him the rest of the year. All year round, we celebrate and we point our lives to Jesus. John the baptizer knew that true hope was to be found in Jesus, Jesus alone, because everything and everyone else fails, but he Never will. Glory was promised, as we have seen. And glory has been partially revealed. That's what we celebrate. And glory will be fully revealed when the Messiah comes a second time, when all fall on their faces and worship him as he is. And we celebrate all that Jesus has done for us. And how did he tell us to remember him? Not to remember his birth, That's good. But to remember him in his death and all the stuff that he's done for us. And that's what we celebrate right now at the communion table. We celebrate that Jesus was born to die for our sins. This thing we call communion 
is what Jesus told us to do for as long as we gather together. It's a time where we remember all that Jesus has done, all that he is doing and he will do. And it's also a time to repent and to return to God. So if you're here, there's something in your life that you know is keeping you from fellowship with God the Father or even with your neighbor. I'd encourage you, come up here and pray. As it says in the song, fall on your knees. And if you're new here, I'd invite you to come up here, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. Remember what God has done for you in Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up here. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I, I, I thank you so much that you never leave us without hope. I thank you that you sent Jesus to die for our sins, Lord. I thank you that you sent John the Baptist to be an example of faithfulness and of repentance, Lord, of someone who proclaims your glory with everything that they are. I pray that as we worship and we take communion, as we we give our offering at the back, Lord, I pray that you'll just do a marvelous work in our lives, Lord. I pray that you'll prick our hearts. I pray that you'll help us to turn back to you. I pray that you'll help us to cut through all the voices at Christmas time that try and steer us away from your still small voice, Lord. Help us to be voices crying out loud that Jesus is the only way for true life this Christmas season. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.